Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 30, and it's the start of Operation Reindeer, one of the most important ops conducted by the SADF during the entire border war. It involved two different attacks, one by air on Kasinga, and the second a ground assault by a mechanized battle group targeting Chatequera and its satellite bases further southeast. Kasinga was 250 kilometers across the border, the cut line. This was going to be tricky from the start. We heard last episode about the high risk factor, and as with many airborne assaults, this one was not going to go too well for the South Africans at times. While the chaotic extraction saw T-34 tanks making it all the way to a key helicopter administration area, and the final minutes were touch and go. First, Kasinga itself. It could be compared to the size of Oshikati at that time. There were many civilians amongst the troops, and this was going to cause the SAD of quite a bit of trouble as they bombed, then assaulted this medium-sized Angolan urban area. A large number of women were being trained as soldiers here, and many were training as a family. In other words, their husbands or partners and their children were also living alongside. It's a bit like the SADF base at Fort Trekka in Pretoria. While it's a training area for different army commands, there are also schools. By the way, Fort Trekka was targeted by the ANC's MK and the PAC's APLA over the years. Civilians living openly inside a military zone are often collateral damage. That's where the similarity ends, because after the operation, Swapo claimed it was not a military base, but Kasinga was a refugee camp. More later about this debate. So, the paratroopers who gathered just before the attack in May 1978 were a mixed crowd. Most were in the middle to late 20s, older than the national servicemen who were to dominate later intakes. There were farmers, businessmen, company executives, trade unionists and artisans. One was a journalist who worked for an anti-apartheid newspaper, and another was a well-known radio and TV producer as well as being an actor. One was a troopie by the name of Fitzgerald who was called Major because he was close to 40 years of age. All three parachute battalions were fiercely competitive and wore the famed Burgundy Beret of the Parabats as they were known, or just the Bats. Colonel Jan Breitenbach who commanded the attack decided to split that force in two. Those landing on Kasinga would number only 377 and comprised of two support platoons four rifle companies and two independent rifle platoons. That was below normal strength. Isn't it crazy to imagine that the SADF were about to assault a major target with fewer airborne troops than was thought necessary? There were five main companies. Alpha Company would be commanded by Captain Gerrit Swart and had three understrength rifle platoons as its own support group, including two 60mm mortars without base plates. They were just too heavy to lug around. Bravo Company was led by Captain Hugo McQueen and had two rifle platoons and two 60mm mortars, also sans base plates. Charlie Company was led by Commandant Monty Forbes and had only two rifle platoons but no support weapons. Delta Company was headed up by Captain Tommy Smith and comprised of two rifle platoons and once again no mortars. The independent platoons that would land were commanded by Lieutenant Pete Boerter of 3 Parachute Battalion and the other was the attack force's only full-time group a rifle element from one parachute battalion led by Lieutenant Johan Witt. The heavy weapons, such as they were, included a mortar platoon with 60mm tubes from one para battalion and an anti-tank platoon commanded by Lieutenant Pierre Peters. They had RPGs and were joined by a specialist group from intelligence along with two engineer officers who would carry out demolitions and finally there were two medical teams each led by a doctor. The latter were going to be very busy indeed. The remaining men, 120, were designated as Echo Company and Major Wesley Foree headed that group. They'd remain airborne flying along the cut line 
and would be redirected to Kasinga based on how things turned out. It's also amazing to think just how the vast majority of these men were not full-time soldiers, and yet they were about to attempt something the SADF had never done, an airborne assault on a static defensive target. The other really interesting fact was that a large number of top brass were about to throw themselves out of the C-160s and C-130s into a proper battle. Breitenbach was going in aboard an Alouette as his mobile HQ. He was already a rank too high for a battalion command, but had refused to entertain office jobs. Two of his subordinates, Brandt and Forbes, were battalion commanders in their own right. And at the OC of 44 Parachute Brigade, Brigadier MJ Duplessis, it basically meant the entire HQ staff were going to jump. The reason for the number of high-ranking officers going in was precisely because of the high number of non-permanent staff men attacking Kasinga. The vast majority had never seen combat, and highly experienced combat commanders were required to fight alongside them. So the plans were laid and preparations made. The combined drop on Kasinga would take place at the same time as a ground attack on Chittaquera further south. The Kasinga attack combined both containment and outright assault, with part of the force used in a landing from the west, while the rest of the paratroopers would cut off any attempt at retreat. This stop-off force would also be ready to prevent any Angolan or Swapo soldiers arriving from outside Kasinga, particularly from the Fapla garrison at Techemuteti, which was going to cause so much trouble, as you're going to hear. Because the town was built up along both sides of a ramrod straight stretch of the main road to Techemuteti, it was a long, thin group of buildings and structures. There were six roads adjoining and a separate slightly elongated ring road to the east of Kasinga, which left the main highway in the south and rejoined it to the north. If you look at the map of Kasinga, a southern crossroads headed northeast to southwest and ended at the river, which lay around a kilometer to the west or to the left, as you look up. As I mentioned last episode, this was a tributary of the larger Kubanga River. As you drive north through the town, about 200 meters later, there's a small road that intersects to the east, to the right, and heads off to join the ring road close to the town's walled cemetery. Another 200 meters or so north of the main road in town, there's a junction, but only westerly, and that little road ended at the river as well. A short distance further north, there's a wire junction, and the northwesterly road would take you to where a tented camp lay, which was a few hundred meters away. This was a large camp of two-man tents that intelligence believed housed around 500 Swapo vets, resting after returning from infiltrations into Southwest Africa, but they were wrong. It was a training camp for raw recruits, which was going to be a lot easier to overrun, particularly since Boota's platoon was going to land virtually on top of them. Continuing on that straight road through town, a deep ditch appears a few yards on the east side or the right from the wide junction. Then further on, another road joined from the right, and finally, the main thoroughfare joins up with the ring road, which headed north to the town of Kapilongo, around 60 kilometers north. I'm going to remind you about the layout constantly because in this attack distances were going to be really important the longer the combat continued. SADF planners believed two hours would be enough to clear the town of Swapo combatants before the paratroopers were withdrawn to the helicopter admin area or HAA around 22 kilometers east. Having read various documents, I'm still not entirely sure who came up with the figure of two hours, probably General Fulyun and Breitenbach. However, that was hopelessly inaccurate. So you know how the road system worked at Kasinga. It's time to focus on the targets. At that time, as you approached Kasinga from the south, there were buildings on both sides of the road which were occupied by Swapo sappers, or engineers. Further up this Ram Road straight main road, the former mine buildings and a transport park for buses. 
Northeast of these were buildings thought to be Swapo headquarters, but that was also incorrect intelligence. The paratroopers only found that out during the battle. Further east, there was an orange orchard which was going to play a role in this battle, and near the orchard, a group of barrack huts were located. These were also living quarters for mainly women. At 0800 hours on May 4th, the plan was the Canberras and four of the buccaneers would bomb Kasinga without warning. It was this act that doomed the civilians inside the town. From the SADF's point of view, had they issued a warning, the paratroopers would have been annihilated because the element of surprise was core to overrunning Kasinga. The strategic zones for their bomb drop included the transport park and Swapo's headquarters, the latter of which was actually on the other side of town. The tent camp to the northwest was going to be bombed and then mirages would strafe. Two other mirages were on standby back at Ondangwa, ready to scramble and assist should the dreaded MiG-21s appear. A scant four minutes after the bombing, the paratroopers would be dropped over their designated points. Porter and Witz platoons would land on Kasinga's northern edge to the left and right of the Techemuteti ring road. The assault force of Alpha and Bravo companies, along with the mortar platoon, would land west of Kasinga on a narrow strip of land between the town and the river. This was taking a chance and did lead to a major hitch during the drop. Charlie Company under Commandant Forbes would land and take up position east of the town around a kilometre away. Delta Company and the anti-tank platoon would land on the southern outskirts and prepare to face both Swapo soldiers fleeing and the possible arrival of Cubans and the Vapla forces from Techemuteti, 16 kilometres away to the south. Meanwhile, a Cessna spotter plane would be buzzing about overhead while the paratroopers deployed, staying well out of the way as they descended, of course. Commandant Archie Moore, who was officer commanding of one parachute battalion, was on board, and his sharp eye was going to be invaluable. While all of this was going on, in the north of the town, Boerter's independent platoons, along with Witt's units, would land on Kasinga's outskirts and then head south along the ring road to the east. Phase 1 would see the units regroup after landing, then Phase 2 would begin. The assault force, or Alpha and Bravo, would head into the middle of town from the west, the left, and head eastly to the right. Alpha Company was on the top of this east-west road, and Bravo Company at the bottom, and they'd all be moving together. Porter's three para-independent platoons would attack the tented camp to the northwest. That was where they thought the vets were, but were actually raw recruits and then fight almost directly south through the long, thin town until contact was made with Alpha Company. You can see already that there were many moving parts, and things with many moving parts unfortunately tend to experience many breakdowns. Witt would take on the houses east of the Techemuteti Otto Tapaiva Road, where intelligence had indicated Cubans could be based along with East Germans. Witt's assault would begin with a mortar platoon softening up the targets because these buildings at the north end of town were not earmarked for bombing by the SA Air Force. As Witt moved south, he was to close in on the trenches that had been spotted in aerial photographs and form a stopper line. Then he'd remain in place there, supposedly until just before they were ordered to withdraw. He'd lay mines on the main road and pull back. At the same time, Charlie Company to the east, the right of the long road through Kasinga, would hold the flank and cut off fleeing Swapo fighters and secure a flat area the SADF named Renex. That was going to come into play for the last phase, which I'll get to in a second. Phase 3 would see the assault companies subdue any remaining resistance and mop up while intelligence teams moved house to house collecting documents. The sappers would destroy equipment and installations, while other engineers were deployed south to lay mines on the Techemuteti Road. There was also a plan to abduct 15 insurgents 
back to Southwest Africa. Then phase four, the withdrawal would kick in around two hours into the battle. Paratroopers would be airlifted out from the landing zone, LZ or Renix. Waves of choppers would then operate from the helicopter administration area 22 kilometers east. The first wave would drop the bats at the HAA, then fly back to Renix and repeat the process. But this time, the second wave would see the wounded and airlifted troops transported directly to Ianhana due south and just inside the southwest African border. After refueling there, they'd fly back to the helicopter admin area east of Kasinga and pick up the first batch of paramats and then fly them to Ianhana as well. Job done. There were a few pertinent questions. The first was, could the SADF take the town in two hours? If they left it much longer, then the Cubans and Fapla would rock up from Techimotete and make life very difficult for the South Africans. The other question was, what day was best for this attack? There were the diplomatic machinations, as I mentioned, going on, and the fact that a couple of thousand kilometers south, outside Kimberley, the SADF was putting on exercise quicksilver for international observers as a ploy to divert attention. Pretoria was ongoing with its fine-tuned diplomacy. Then, of course, what of the weather? And importantly, what of the wind? While Breitenbach, the commander of this assault, was chewing his pencil wondering about all of this, along with General Fulun, there was also the matter of timing the overland mechanized attack on the town codenamed Vietnam, Chetaquera. That was around 30 kilometers north of the southwest African border in the eastern section. So as we cover Operation Reindeer, I'm going to speak about the eastern and western section so it doesn't get too confusing if it isn't already. Intelligence reports also began to surface that Swapo had now become aware that the likely incursion into Angola by the SADF was not going to be mid or late winter, but earlier. They believed the SADF would hold Exercise Quicksilver, then redeploy the units rapidly north, which meant they'd attack by mid-May at the earliest. General Fulun was becoming more concerned because he had heard Swapo had predicted a winter attack. The final decision to attack on May 4th used pretty simple military strategy. The enemy would expect an attack overland probably directed at its southern bases a little later. Therefore, the timing was crucial. Anyone who's been in a battle knows that surprises everything, particularly if you're going to lob what we pilots call meat bombs out of aeroplanes over a heavily defended camp in broad daylight. If the enemy is still planning and preparing, you're in with a good chance of victory. And it was also this fact that led to Swapo and Angolan forces around Chetiquera being far better prepared than around Kasinga. The series of bases around Chitiquera, particularly Bravo and Vietnam, were going to extract a lot of blood. While Chitiquera was really a collection of huts and trenches, the tactical importance was obvious. It was one of Swapo's main supply depots and the headquarters of the planned attacks on Avambaland. SADF intelligence picked up that several other bases south of Chitiquera were formidable. Those in what was called the Dobondola complex. Four bases codenamed Dobondola 1 and 2, and two others called Chatua and Hamona. At least 570 Swapo insurgents were based there, all heavily armed with heavy weapons, such as 82mm recoilless guns, mortars, RPG-7s, anti-tank rockets, and 14.5mm anti-aircraft guns. This was going to be more difficult in many ways than Kasinga. The SADF had bitten off quite a bit. Could they chew it all? Next episode, I'll start with the plans for the mechanized battle group assault of Chetiquera, and the opening salvo of Operation Reindeer. Please rate the podcast on your platform of choice. It helps increase the visibility of our series. For any messages, you can mail me via the website abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter at Deslay. Until next, what's bait? Thank you.